Hello and welcome to Legendary Leaders, the podcast. My name is Kathleen O'Sullivan and I am the host of this show. And together with a wide range of legendary leaders and experts in the field of leadership of self and others, we are going to explore concepts and ideas that show you how you can move past potential fears, negative self-talk and constant doubts in order to encourage you to becoming a legendary leader yourself with far more natural impact, influence and inspiration. We want you to be you, to be at your best and to show up in the most authentic way. So are you ready for it? Well, welcome once again to Legendary Leaders, the podcast. Hello, hello, and welcome everybody to another episode of Legendary Leaders, the podcast. I'm really happy to have you here, and I'm very happy to have another so inspiring and insightful guest with me today who talks to me today about horses and what horses can teach us about leadership. Well, this is one part of our conversation. Um, Summer Davis is my guest today and she loves horses. She loves the area she lives in, Colorado, gives her peace, offers a lot of activities to connect with nature, to connect with animals and to be more present in life overall. How? Well, she's going to share that with us today. And maybe you have been in situations where you thought, I feel like literally running on a treadmill 24-7, not taking any time for myself, wondering as to whether I'm actually doing a good job and what I can improve, but I'm not really giving myself the space and the time to do that and to think about that. And first-time leaders, middle managers have a specific challenge in getting the time and taking the time for themselves. In learning, in taking feedback on board, or not only on board, but actually being able to do something with it. Because they're in such a specific situation where there's a lot of insecurity. I'm a first-time leader. Am I doing things correctly or not? Who should or what should I be like? We are looking up to other leaders. They are role models and we want to be like them instead of focusing on who we really are and who we want to be. For middle managers, one of the key struggles is often... We are literally in the middle, in that sandwich. Expectations, right, coming from the top, more and more priorities being passed on to us. And at the same time, being strongly connected to the rest of the organization, leading teams on other levels and trying to get it right for them. And then sometimes, I don't know about you, but I have experienced it as a middle manager where I often felt stuck stuck in my own expectations not to pass on too much pressure to people, to behave in a certain way, but yet to influence successfully upwards and so many other things that still feel overwhelming just talking about it. Now, Summer works with those leaders and helps them right from the start to build their skills, to feel more confident and to grow in a, I'm going to say it, very healthy and open manner. And it's been a beautiful conversation because Summer gives us beautiful insights into her experiences, into some of the mistakes she has made in the past, not with bad intentions behind them, absolutely not. But yet she had a few eye-opening moments that helped her be the leader she is today and support the leaders that she supports. 
But let me tell you a little bit more about Summer Davis. She is an award-winning leadership development expert with over 15 years of experience in cultivating thriving work environments where individuals feel equipped, capable, valued, and truly connected. Summer specializes in guiding emerging leaders to develop the mindset and tactical skills required to lead with impact, confidence, and empowerment while really loving what they do. So the key focus here is also on what is their purpose? Why are they doing what they are doing? And to keep reflecting upon it as we grow and evolve. She was actually raised in a household that often struggled financially. And she grew up in Boulder, Colorado, where she discovered her passion for horses during the 1990s. And despite her initial intention to work in the equestrian industry, Fate led her to a leadership role early in her career. She felt unqualified and inexperienced, so she embarked on a trial-by-fire journey that ignited her passion for helping others learn to lead skillfully and effectively. She's going to share all of those insights with us, speaks very openly and authentically. That's what I really loved about the conversation, and I can't wait to share it with you in a moment. So enjoy, and as always, let us know what you make of it and what key points you took away from the conversation. Take good care. Speak to you in a moment. Hey, Summer. Such a pleasure to have you here. Welcome. Thank you. It is a delight to be here. Thanks for having me on. And you know what? It's um, another leader from Colorado with all your uniqueness. And we will learn about all your unique knowledge and traits and um, personality and so on and so forth. But I said it to a previous guest. I have so many influences in the leadership space here on the show coming from Colorado. It must be the space you operate in. I think it is. It's something in the in the altitude or the air or the glacier water, who knows, but there's, there's a lot of um, really great thinking centered around, uh, around some of the American West. So I feel lucky to be here. Yeah. And for a non-American person, i.e. myself in this case, what, what makes the, the, the West a little bit more centered around this great thinking? What, yeah, creates this kind of space? So I have I have a theory on this that is based in nothing but my own opinion. So just yeah. take it for what it's worth. But I think there is something in the culture in Colorado and Wyoming and Montana and and this slice of the United States that we might call the West um, that probably roots back to some of the cowboy culture of of folks coming out here and and having to kind of figure it out and live in a in a totally different environment and. Um, there was a bit of entrepreneurial spirit and lots of freedom and lots of courage and creativity that went into the cowboy culture that that kind of settled the American West. And I know that there's really beautiful parts of that history and not so beautiful parts of that history. But I hope that what we tap into and, and kind of what's inspiring is some of that adventurism and uh, and willingness to explore and try new things and and kind of be out there on the front lines of things and that's kind of my theory based in only my own opinion yeah and you are a leader you're an entrepreneur a mom it's best obviously to for you to introduce yourself a little bit more however one question I do have is how do you utilize that space that environment you live in to get the best out of you 
Yeah. So I've actually, I'm a Colorado native. There's not a lot of us that were born here, but I was born in Boulder, Colorado, which is traditionally known for a lot of really free thinking. Some people at the term, I don't know if the term hippie translates to everyone, but kind of this really free spirit type of space. So I was born and raised there. And then I've had the privilege to spend lots of time all over the world to live a number of different places. And we, my husband and I eventually decided to come back to Colorado to raise our girls because there is something about this space. There is something about the access to really unbelievable outdoor areas. And we're so close to the mountains. So you can really be up on skis or in my case, a snowboard in the winter quite quickly. There's tons of hiking, but then there's also lots of things to do down on the plains. So basically whatever you're into, you can tap into some of this outdoor space, which for me um, as an equestrian, being able to have a big hairy problem and get up on my horse and go for a ride, I usually find answers come to me in that time when I'm outside of my house, out in in nature and in the quiet that comes from from that space. And Colorado offers so much of that. I think it draws many of us who find that to be a good outlet. Yeah, I always watch the social media posts of friends from Colorado with big chalice and think, oh, what a what a stunning <laughs> place. No place is there without any challenges. I um, appreciate that as well. But yeah, overall, it looks pretty appealing, I have to say. Yeah, it's pretty nice. It's pretty nice. You mentioned already the horse and the horse um, plays a role in your life or horses, better said. Tell us indeed a little bit more about you and how you came from horses into leadership. So it's funny. I always I always answer that question by saying my background is super unusual. And the longer I'm in this space, the more I find all of us have an unusual background. I know absolutely zero coaches or leadership professionals who went to university knowing I want to develop leaders. I want to be in the leadership space. Like, I don't know many 18 year olds who go to university thinking that. So most of us have had life experiences that were unexpected or unplanned that have gotten us to being really passionate about this space. And I'm, I'm absolutely right in that, in that same story. So my background, as I mentioned, is a little unusual. I um, grew up in Boulder, Colorado, and my family Uh, was financially very insecure. We spent the majority of my childhood quite a bit below the poverty line. And um, American listeners may know what this is. I don't know that everybody else would. But in the States, in the 80s, when I was a kid, we had something called food stamps, which was literally a book of stamps that that you could use to trade in for food if you were a low-income family. And my family was a recipient of that program. And I can remember just knowing from such a young age that I wanted to ride and I wanted to be around horses and watching my mother sit at the kitchen table and portion out food stamps in order to make sure that we would have enough chicken or bread or whatever to get through the end of the month. And at the same time, be just begging for a pony. You know, I could have been begging for a rocket to go to the moon. It was just, it was so far outside of anything that was going to be in reality for my family. And I think that was a really formative experience for me because I wanted it so bad. And luckily, um, when I was a teenager, I had the opportunity to be physically near. We lived near a barn that would allow me to clean stalls in exchange for riding time. And I started doing that at about nine and did that through all of college. And it was amazing because I wanted it so much and I appreciated it so much. 
And it gave me a benefit that I didn't see at the time, but I'm now so grateful for. Um, when you do that, when you're a working student at a barn, you don't get to ride the really nice horses that all the kids who come from families that can afford that get to ride. You get to ride the horses that nobody else wants to ride, um, which often means you get to ride horses that people might name are broken or bad or crazy. And I, I look back now and know that I was riding some horses that were probably really dangerous, but it was such an opportunity for me to be able to really learn how to be a horsewoman and work through that with a horse, figure out what it was that they were good at and find a way to work together with an animal who is 1200 pounds and doesn't speak English. And I was, you know, an 80 pound scrappy little blonde kid trying to figure out how are we going to be a team and work together and do this. And I just, I wasn't going to let anything like a bad attitude or crazy history get in the way. And that has translated to the so many insights when working with people. Luckily, most humans speak some language that I can connect with them on. And that helps a lot. But there are so many things about the way we use our energy, the way we communicate and build trust that I learned through that experience. And so I didn't know it at the time, but I was really building a career in leadership in doing all of that mucking out stalls and riding crazy horses and and trying to, to make it work stuff. And because of that, I was, I was a really poor student. I almost failed out of high school. I There's no logical reason why I should have graduated high school. Somehow they let me probably because they wanted to get me out of there. I talked my way into university and somebody let me in to university on academic probation. I came in freshman year on academic probation, which I also think is not a thing. I think they just invented it because I had a really good story. And I, I got in because there was an equine science program and there was an opportunity to go to university for courses. And that changed my life. I was so excited about the opportunity to really be around horses all the time. And I started to get excited about education went to school, graduated, got a job in the horse industry. And when I went to actually work in the equine industry, I I loved it and I hated it because it wasn't that part of passion, right? Now my passion was my career and I wasn't able to love it and connect to it in the same way because I was on the industrial side of it. So I kind of looked around for some different jobs and out of the blue, someone offered me a job running a veterinary hospital. And I thought, well, this is kind of cool because it pays enough for me to be able to ride and still be with my horse. And it keeps me in the animal industry, which I love. So I'll do it. So they put me in charge of this veterinary hospital. I'm 23 years old, 24 years old. I have no training to lead people whatsoever. I have no idea what I'm doing. And I was hot mess express. Just, it was terrible. And I knew things were really bad in the first couple of months. But I had a watershed moment one day walking out for my lunch break and one of my young doctors was sitting in her car and she was crying. And so I pulled her aside when she came back from lunch and I said, you know, what's going on? You're crying in your car? And I knew the answer was, I hate working here. And the the bigger answer to that was, I hate working for you. But she didn't say that. She just said, I'm really unhappy. And I knew in that moment, this is me. I'm creating this and I need to fix it. So I did what you do back then is I went into an actual bookstore and bought an actual paper book and I started reading it and it was about leadership and I started applying the principles and it worked and that was it. I was, I was hooked. I went back to school. I got a master's in organizational performance and leadership and I've spent the last 16 years working in a corporate environment and now 
in my own consultancy, working with leaders, helping them bring to life those practices to make really good work environments. So kind of an unusual story, I would say, but that's how I got here. Definitely an unusual story, but a fabulous story. <laughs> and and I have quite a few questions about your story as well. For, for a moment, I would like to get back to the horses. Sure. Right? And I loved what you said. And for some reason, I felt really deeply touched when you mentioned the horses you were allowed to ride when you were a little girl. And those were the broken ones. I'm like, how dare you to call them the broken ones and bad horses <laughs> and so on. Come on. It shows a little bit parts of our organizational culture. I say parts because there are obviously facets of cultures. But sometimes we categorize paper, we put them into boxes because they have made a mistake in the past or they're not as quick as we want them to be or whatever it is. And we give them titles and names and it's just unnecessary. And I think we might miss out of uh, on potential, realizing some great talents. And you really shared with the story that you believed in them, you invest in them, you cared about them and Together, you could basically live out your passion. And I love that story. It's beautiful. So thank you for sharing it. I love it too. And one of the big insights that I've come back to time and time again from that experience is oftentimes people are characterized as broken or not good at what they do or a problem. And a lot of times it's because we are asking them to do something that is not what they do best. Yeah. And I found that that was often true with horses. They were being asked to do a discipline or something that that just wasn't what they were built to do or what their brain was built to do. And as soon as you were able to figure out what is this horse great at and open the door to them on that, everything changed. And the same thing is true with people. Oftentimes when you see people stumbling or struggling, it's because they're being asked to do something that they were never designed to do. It's it's like, I think it's Einstein or Dr. Seuss. And now I'm not going to remember which one said it, but if you ask a fish to fly and you judge them by that measure, they'll always fail. And we do that to people all the time. Yeah. Oh, totally. It actually reminds me of a group of people I worked with today around the topic of how to get to peak performance. You know, you have really fantastic performers um, who fulfill all the criteria of the job description and also, also bring the social skills into the mix. And now how to really explore their potential. And passion was a big topic. How do you really figure out not just what their strengths are, but what their passions are? So you get them more often into a state of flow where they are so immersed in the task, whatever they are doing really, that automatically their performance level goes up. And I think it is so important. And yet, and someone highlighted that today as well, we focus quite often on what's wrong. What's not working? We expect something of people without expressing those expectations explicitly as well. And I think there is a lot we could do from a very human perspective in, a, in order to set people up for success right from the start. Mm -hmm. Thinking about the words we use and as you said, really focusing on what they are good at are just some of those steps we can take. Yeah, it's such a, it's such a, Beautiful window, if you can find that little place of success mm. to just open the door to trust, open the door to collaborative success, it can be a really powerful way to just skyrocket performance and skyrocket 
all of the things that you're trying to get is if you can just find that little place where you see success shining through. I still have a lot of questions about your story, <laughs> but you just got me hooked with this little place. Yeah. When working with leaders, as you do, um, how do you help them find this little place? So oftentimes it's in questioning, in in kind of picking at, I have leaders come to me often who are struggling. So in the space of coaching now, they may come to me because they feel like they're failing or they're struggling or they just don't enjoy it anymore. And if you can do the same thing with leaders or not leaders, it really doesn't matter, but just kind of picking at, well, where, where are you not struggling? What is going well? What do you like about that? How does that make you feel when you're doing that small thing that you like and start just kind of, I call it kind of like picking, but you could think of it like pulling the thread on a, a ball of yarn. If you can just find that one little end of thread and just pull at it gently, you'll start to see that the more you can show them, okay, I'm not going to, I'm not going to rip you apart. I'm just going to slowly start getting into what do you love about that? And how can we do more of that? And, and where do you get to use skills that are, that are really great for you, that give you that energy, that alive in you and help them trust because some folks have a bit of a history that if they say, oh, well, I really, my job is I'm an accountant, but I really love when I get to do X, Y, and Z because I have the opportunity to be artistically creative, but that's not my job. So I don't want anyone to think I'm not interested in my job. So I am afraid to share with you these pieces. If you can help them establish some trust and say, well, let's just see, let's just play with Maybe there is some small places we can bring in that skill that brings you energy or or those things and get you outside of this box of, well, you have to do it this way and you have to be in this role all the time. So I think it's it's just in that gentle questioning and slow picking going after, I see this little glimmer. How can I chase that down a little bit? The words gentle and slow don't necessarily always land with some of the leaders I work with not because they don't want them to land but just because loads of butts are coming up right away yeah what about your butts or what butts do you often hear when you suggest this little gentle approach so often I think we live in a society that is so fast and we expect solutions so fast and we want we want the quick fix to everything, right? We want the ticket to get rich overnight. We want the pill that's going to make us skinny tomorrow. We want the fast solution to everything. And the reality is sustainable solutions are often, most of the time, not fast. So helping folks to come back and see, let's look at the bigger picture of what we're trying to solve here. And if we take our time in this one small area, that doesn't mean we have to go slow all the time. You can continue to have lots of momentum and make progress. But going slow here means that we can be thoughtful and purposeful. And what we don't want to do is just rip something open and have everything spill all over the floor. Let's slowly and intentionally open the door to make some purposeful change and discovery, whether it's about someone you're working with or about yourself. But I think it's just reminding folks that no matter how fun it sounds to have the overnight fix, that's not a thing. And sustainable solutions are, are often slow solutions. And, and I guess that's the moment when a coach would really explore what is at the end of that threat or that conversation. What's going to happen? What is this big vision that you are trying to achieve, right? Why would we invest this time into our people to make it happen, to identify what that little spot is? Because that's, that's the most important piece, the big why, right? mm -hmm. to really trigger the motivation there. Mm -hmm. 
I'm going to come back for a moment to your story so far. I wanted to say to your life story, but Jesus, you are still in the beginning of your life story. <laughs> I actually experienced this year for the first time, horse meditation. I was super curious about it and thought, oh, let's give it a go. And I was fascinated. And I wonder as to whether you have any insights and experiences you can share. Because you meditate and you have horses walking around you. And some horses will feel drawn to you, others less so. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I was wondering, what do they pick up in order to come to you or not to come to you? With some of my peers who were joining this meditation, they would be picking on their little hats. Um, with others, they would sniffle on their jackets. With others, no, 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 I don't even come close to you. And it was brilliant. Yeah, any experiences you can share, anything we can learn in a more unconventional way by stepping into experiences like that about our own leadership would be wonderful. So I think part of what I love about horses is that they are so unbelievably different from what we are as a species in that their ability to tune into emotion and energy is far beyond what we can comprehend. And there's all sorts of science out there that confirms what horses are and are not able to do, but they are able to hear your heartbeat from I think something like a hundred yards away. They're able to hear a heartbeat. And so they can tell your heart's beating fast. If it's beating slow, they can tell if you're breathing really heavy, or if you're holding your breath a little bit, they can feel, especially if you're physically close to them, they can feel if you're tensing your muscles or, or if you've relaxed. And my horse will tell me all the time, if I'm not present, if he knows I'm, you know, just phoning it in, brushing him down or whatever, you know, he'll start stomping or he'll start stepping away from me because he knows my energy is not there with him. And that can sometimes sound a little bit spiritual and that's beautiful if you take it that way. And it's very scientific. It's a survival mechanism. It's something that they have developed over thousands of years of evolution to keep them safe because ultimately horses are prey animals. And so they are constantly on the lookout for, is something going to eat me? And are you going to eat me? And so they've, they've developed some of this ability to tap into emotion and physical beings as a defense mechanism to keep them safe. And that's part of what's helped them be such an evolutionarily successful animal. It's also been what's helped, been what's helped them be a good partner to us right? Horses have been a part of our history, whether it's in farming or warfare or travel for almost all of human history, because they have that ability to tune into their environment around them. So horse meditation makes perfect sense because if you're meditating and you're really getting into that space, a horse is going to know it and is going to respond to the energy that your body is putting out. Um, so there's all sorts of cool science and metaphysics all around that and that sort of thing. But I think what they can teach us is really critically, the ability to be present. So horses don't do what we do. If you have a conversation with somebody and you're like, oh, I really don't love the way that conversation went and you're replaying it and you're replaying it and you're replaying it and you spend your whole evening replaying it in your head. Horses don't do that, right? If they have an interaction with, with another horse in the herd, it's done. They move on. They're not, they're not worried about it. They're not carrying that guilt or that regret. They may learn from it, right? If they get hurt somewhere, they'll remember I got hurt there and and learn from it, but they don't they don't resonate in the past and they don't spend a whole lot of time worrying about, well, what's gonna happen next week? You know, I, oh, I'm gonna have to interact with this person 
three days from now. And some of it's because they don't know, but they don't do that. They're just present in the moment and they make decisions together when they're in a herd of other horses together as a present collective to keep each other safe. And they, they don't second guess it. So they have the ability to be present because they're just ruminating on what's happening now. Um, and I think that that's such a valuable lesson that we, we can take from them. They don't second guess it. They don't ruminate on it. They just take what's happening in the moment. And I often wish I had the ability to do a lot more of that. And yet you are taking the steps, you know, to spend time with your horse to be in that moment. Um, and, and I think that is an important step to take already. But also what this insight just reminded me of is how important noticing it. Quite often when um, I speak with individuals, leaders in particular, we talk about a concept, notice, decide, act. You know, notice what's happening around you. What do you notice is missing? What's present? Um, what do people need in the moment? Then you make decisions accordingly. Mm-hmm. And then you act. And that's not just a linear process. It's a cycle. It starts again and again and again. So I always notice how my child reacts to me, right? And I can pretend I'm the coolest and calmest mom, but inside, if I'm not, he picks it up, right? Mm -hmm. And I think there are loads of examples around us where we notice, what does this reaction at the moment tell us? And I think the story you just shared about horses gave me exactly that insight. So how can we pay more attention to the world around us? How can Mm -hmm. we be more present to animals with animals around us, but but anybody really, in order to learn something about ourselves. I think it's important intel we can gain how people respond to us. I love this notice, decide, act. And I think what most people would say is, oh, I do that. And if they really reflect on what they do, they would say, actually, what I do is I notice act. And that intentional decision to say, I'm going to make a decision, not just act in relation to what I've noticed that that's a little bit more of a process. And so I think that this comes up in parenting. I have two little girls too. So I know for sure there are moments where I notice act and I didn't necessarily take that step in between and say, I'm going to decide how I will respond Mm -hmm. to this and try to act in a way that's aligned with the intention that I want to have. We do this also with leadership. If you're coming up against a, a problem or a crisis or you've or even in moments where something brilliant's happened we notice oh you've done something brilliant great job and we recognize but we may not make that moment in between to say i'm going to decide to recognize this individual in a way that i know will be meaningful to them or i'm going to make the intentional decision to do whatever it is that i do we do a little bit more notice act And that decision, that pausing moment to intentionally decide how will I act is a big step change for many folks as they start to solidify more of an intentional leadership presence Mm -hmm. and an intentional impact on others. Yeah, absolutely. And impact is the word because it can have such a huge impact. Even the tiniest decision-making process can change the world for others. So mm-hmm. it is very useful to stop in that moment, really reflect. I'm moving my way or I'm moving towards the vet hospital in your story. First of all, coming from 
university being more on the industrial side of working with horses which I'm curious about what is that industrial side by the way <laughs> what did you do in that role I actually so um I worked in a breeding barn so I was really interested in equine gen genetics so with this is way more technical information than you probably or any one of your listeners probably needs but um with racehorses particularly you don't necessarily want to have a female racehorse off the track for the time that it takes for her to be pregnant and have a baby. So there's a lot of work that is done in that industry around artificial insemination, where you'll take an embryo from a genetically really superior female horse and inseminate it from a male horse. And then you'll, you'll inseminate it into a recipient mare who will then go on to have the baby who is genetically of other parents, but is carried by a horse who's not working on the track. So for me, that was a lot of fun because I got to, I got to really learn about genetics and spend a lot of time being a science geek, which I loved. Um, but it also meant I spent all, almost all my time in a lab. And what I wanted to do was work with horses. So that's what I mean when I say I was on the industrial side of, of the horse business. You're blowing my mind here today. <laughs> Who knew? Jesus. <laughs> We can learn indeed a lot from that space. But how did you then go from the lab into a vet hospital when you shared the story? It was like, yeah, and then, you know, I was asked to lead a vet hospital. How, how did it happen? So I, I did, I think what every person in their early 20s does, maybe not everyone does this, but it's what I thought was normal. Um, when I was kind of like in this crisis, I knew I didn't love my job. But I'd gone to university for it. And for so long, I had such clarity, like, this is what I'm going to do. And this will be my career. And I was so early into it and feeling like, oh, I've made a mistake here. So it's kind of like, what, what do I do? So I got a puppy because I thought that would help me get some clarity. I went out and got a puppy. His name was Sebastian. And so I took him to the veterinary hospital for his initial puppy vaccines and puppy care. And I interestingly had a not great experience. And ended up speaking to the person who kind of, it was a chain of veterinary hospitals. So he was in charge of the group of hospitals. And I was giving him a little bit of a lecture about how important I felt like animals were to families and how important my dog was to me because I was so smart in my early 20s. I could tell anybody anything. And he stopped me halfway through my lecture and he said, you know, I'm really sorry that you didn't feel like those values were represented when you came to our hospital. I'm looking for people who have similar values. Is there any chance you want a job? And I have no idea what compelled him to say this, but I just said, yes. I said, that sounds great. I agree. And I didn't know what the job was. I had no idea what I was signing <laughs> for, but I knew, I knew I didn't like what I was doing. So like, what did I have to lose? And I didn't have a mortgage or anything really big. So, yeah. you know, let's go. And what I didn't know at the time was that that veterinary hospital was owned by a very large organization, which was allowed what allowed me to get into corporate America. But I just said yes. And I showed up on the first day and they're like, okay, well, you're the manager. And I was like, oh, cool. <laughs> How do I do that? I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure I had something better to say, but I, you know, I really didn't know what I was getting into. And I, I was just very much in that place where I was just going to say yes and figure it out. And, and that's what happened. Very cool. Just say yes. Let's give it a go, you know. <laughs> and I think along the way, this has been taken from us or we have taken it from ourselves to just say yes. 
let's figure it out along the way. I'm definitely sometimes at least falling into the category of, uh, let me analyze it. Let me ask loads of questions first. Then I talk to other people about it. Oh, should I really be doing it? And, and by then I have talked myself out of an opportunity. So there are pros and cons, obviously, on all sides. But, you know, sometimes just saying yes, I'd open up for new opportunities. What were all of these learnings and opportunities for you? So for me, and it definitely plays into my work today, it was really an opportunity to see that when people are put in charge of other people, and I was absolutely in that boat, but not given the skill set to do it, the impact that that has on everyone is just tremendous. You have such sway on someone based on the way you behave as a manager. And I saw it firsthand. I mean, I was making people cry in their car. I would never, ever hope that I would make someone feel that way, but my inadvertent actions were creating that impact. And so for me, that's why I've got so much passion, especially about working with first-time and frontline leaders, because they are the ones who need it often the most and who are often left out of leadership development opportunities or really meaningful and, and impactful leadership development opportunities. So that was a big um, moment for me to kind of just solidify my commitment to that community. And the other big learning for me was around trust, the importance of building trust first and foremost, and, and focusing on doing that first. And in that situation, I had really broken trust along the way rather than building it. So it was it was an opportunity to learn firsthand how hard it is to build that back and to earn it back over time in the workplace if you've broken trust. And hopefully I was, for most of the people who, who worked there, I was able to to earn back their trust and, and show them that I was invested in being a good and present leader. But it was never my intention to be a bad leader. It was never my intention to make it a, a terrible work environment. And I guess that would be the last thing is, is that has been so true, both in my own experience and in the managers that I've worked with since then. I have never once run up against somebody who says, I really hope I'm a terrible leader. I, I hope I'm making this a bad work environment. I hope I'm a micromanager. I hope I'm breaking trust and belittling people or whatever. Nobody says that unless you're a sociopath, which is very rare, but they just don't have that intentionality and that self-awareness. And so that that takes some work and, and doing to get there, but then it's so cool once you start to see folks build that connection. Today's podcast is sponsored by Inner Professional Online Training Programs. With courses geared specifically for legendary leaders, Inner Professional provides an extraordinary catalog of leadership and professional development programs unlike any online training you've experienced before. Hone your conscious and authentic leadership skills with peer group, networking communities, direct engagement with life experts, and a wealth of compelling, easy to engage on demand content. Learn more at kathleenmerkel.com slash inner professional. I'm going to dive a little bit deeper and I hope you don't mind me asking what was going on for the person in the car. You said you broke people's trust and I'm delighted that you are so open with us here, not just with me, but every listener listening to us. So thank you for that. But what specifically was happening there? And also, what was the impact of that feedback on you? Yeah, that was a big watershed moment. I'll never forget it. I'll remember what color her car was and what she was wearing, because it's just one of those things that just sears into your heart when you're like, oh, this I've done this. This is me. 
So veterinarians are such an interesting group of people. And many uh, people who are in highly trained professions are similar. They've known what they wanted to be since they were three or four. And for veterinarians, I call it the James Harriet effect. And I don't know if everybody will know this, but there is an author named James Harriet, and he wrote a book called All Things Great and Small. And it's a famous book about a veterinarian in the English countryside who goes out and you know, takes care of people's cats and dogs and chickens and horses and everything. And they fall in love with the ideal of being a veterinarian. And maybe they read that book or maybe they didn't, but at some point along the way, they fell in love with the idea of helping animals. Now to go to veterinary school, and I'm picking on the veterinary profession, but many professions have this to be true as well. To go to veterinary school is incredibly hard. It's actually harder to get into veterinary school than it is to get into human medical school. You have to have better grades, more commitment. So most of them worked incredibly hard in high school, then worked incredibly hard in undergraduate just to be accepted to go on to learn in veterinary school. And unlike a human doctor who has to learn one species, they have to learn them all. And they're all incredibly different, right? So it's it's hard to become a veterinarian and your heart absolutely has to be in it. So this woman had gone through the same experience. She'd worked so hard with so much passion to become a veterinarian. She got her first job in my veterinary hospital And she did it because she loved working with animals. And one of the things that nobody told her and nobody tells most people in these highly trained professions is that when you rock up and you put on that white coat, everyone's going to think you know how to be a leader and nobody's taught you how to do it. So she was struggling with that. And she was struggling with that. The conduit to animals is humans. And what she wanted to do was to, to heal animals. She never really occurred to her that she'd have to work with a human to get Mm. there. Mm. And that was a really tough realization. And she's having all of these like really big moments and nobody is there helping her because I had no idea that she was struggling with that because I wasn't paying enough attention. I wasn't seeing the way she came out of the exam rooms. I wasn't seeing how late she was staying every single night trying to finish her medical notes. I wasn't seeing all of that because I wasn't looking for it. And so she was struggling right there in front of me and I didn't see it. Instead, what I saw was corporate was pushing down, you've got to hit these numbers and make this much money and see these many pets. And so I was saying, we've got to hit these numbers and see this many pets. Mm. And and so now this poor woman, young woman, she's about my age, is in this situation where her dreams are starting to almost fall apart in her hands. And then she's got some other lady telling her about hitting numbers. And that had to be a horrible experience for her. And I didn't see it until I saw that moment where she's just crying in her car because she's having this moment of I've dedicated my life to this and I hate it. And it was really profound because I was able to say, oh my gosh, first of all, I've got to notice the people in front of me and the human experience they're having and be a support for them in a way that's helpful for them. And second of all, I'm the messenger. So if I rock in with these numbers focused messages and just shove them down these veterinaries, veterinarians throws they're gonna hate it and they're not gonna like working here i can message this in a different way i can be a different face for the organization and that took a lot of practice and a lot of work to get better at it but those were a couple of the things that that kind of came up as that was going on you so much for sharing it and ah it hit me a little bit on behalf of both of you really because you have two individuals there who are with the knowledge they have trying to do their best but what I haven't heard, and I might be unfair here, is where was the support, the guidance for you in this moment? And I wonder 
how you made the shift happen. You said it took a little bit of time, understandably, but yeah, how did you do it? And who did you get on your side to help you with that shift as well? So I was in a in a situation that many people are in even today, which is that there wasn't any. Mm-hmm. There wasn't any support from from the organization that I worked for. And they weren't a bad organization. They just did what most organizations do, which is funnel most of the development support to the top. Um, And so they were kind of just doing what's done for the most part. So that's part of why I'm so, so committed to, we've got to change this narrative. We've got to help these people because there wasn't really any corporate support for me. Fortunately, because of my experiences as a young person, I have and had then what I would say is a lot of grit. Like I'm just... I'm not going to fail and I'm going to figure it out, whatever it takes. And so that's basically what I did. And that's where, that's how I ended up at a bookstore. And interestingly, at the time I didn't have enough money to buy the book. So I would just go there on my lunch break and read a chapter and then go back and hopefully nobody kicked me out of the bookstore. <laughs> I did eventually buy the book. So <laughs> for the author to know, like I have paid my dues, I did buy it, but I just, I had this determination that I was going to figure it out. And I, I had a lot of clarity that the problem was me. Like that was pretty obvious. Um, And then luckily I've got an amazing system at home. And I know not everybody has a partner who's really supportive, but I I am lucky to have that. And he kind of just said, well, let's figure it out. You know, I I was coming home devastated that this was going on and and I had a lot of support to to figure it out and and to try things out. And um, luckily Sebastian, the the dog that got me there, um, he's a very well-trained leadership development expert now because I would just practice everything with him and he would listen. And it was, it was a great way to, to get some practice before I'd go do it with my team, but just all those sorts of things about surrounding yourself with people who will be supportive outside of work, the things that give you an outlet so that when things go really bad and you feel like, oh, this has been the worst day, you can snuggle your chihuahua or your dog or whatever you end up having. So I was lucky to have that, but there really wasn't support uh, in the organization at the time. One of the things I'm the most proud of is I then went on to move up through that organization, ended up being um, a senior leader in the leadership space and creating a first-time leader program that reached 87% of first-time leaders in their first three months. So that was one of the things that I, I was super committed to doing in that organization saying, this isn't good enough. We've got to do something different and we can do it. Just take some work to get there. Ah, loving it that you take your own experiences and say, we're going to do something differently. I learn from it. Other people can learn with me and accelerate their growth really with my help and the help of a book. I don't hear very often a book made a big difference for me. I hear very often inspiring book, great book. And then I had to. So fantastic, actually, that you weren't able to afford it so that you can read it chapter by chapter, bite-sized chunks, practice it, come back, (laughs) move on. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And and test, right? Like yeah. if you try a little bit of a book and you're like, well, these principles don't work at all for me. Okay, fine. Go do something different. Not everything is going to work for everybody. And that's what I that's part of what I love about books is you pick it up and if it's not for you, set it back down. It's not it's not a tattoo on your forehead. You can try some different things. Exactly. But you know what? I literally fell off my chair when I read on your website that the average leader or it takes the average leader 19 years to get development. Are you joking? Is that based on US research? Or I, I was literally shocked. It's not my research. I'm happy to send you the study if you want to link it in the yeah. comments so people can see it. I did not do the research. Another organization did the research. But yeah, that's global data. And most people who work in 
in frontline situations will tell you that that probably resonates with them. Actually, one of the things I'm looking at now, I know this episode will air a little bit later, but at the moment, we have all of the um, major U.S. automobile manufacturers striking. They're not going to work. They haven't gone to work for six days. There's 103,000 of them who work in just one organization, and they don't have frontline leadership development. So, you know, if you look at something like that, it, it, it feels quite true that somebody might go through their whole career being a shift leader or a shift manager. Um, and because they're on the front lines of an organization, they just never get anything. And so that skews that number pretty dramatically. What are the risks for organizations in not investing in the frontline leaders, middle managers, I would add to it as well? The risk is if you don't invest in your frontline leaders, they do become your middle managers. And if you're really unlucky, they'll end up becoming your senior leaders. And these are people who end up figuring it out as they go. And sometimes they end up tremendous. They're so great, right? They go out and did what do what I did and they find themselves a mentor or they go and, and now so much knowledge online. So that's great. They maybe go find something that works really well for them. Super. But more likely is that they don't and they just figure it out along the way. And there's an old saying that that sometimes comes up in L&D spaces, which is, well, what what if we train them and they leave? And then mm -hmm. the retort is, well, what if we train them or if we don't train them and they stay? Mm -hmm. Now you've got untrained people doing the work. And if you come back to the science part of it, what happens in our human brain is the first time we do something, we begin to develop something called a neuropathway. And that is the route your brain will take to complete that task again and again. So when you drive yourself home from work, you develop a neural pathway in your head that says, I turn right at the stop sign and I pull into this driveway or whatever. The same thing happens with our behaviors and our interactions with other people. If you give feedback a certain way, whether it went well or it didn't go well, your brain will start to learn to do it that way. And it becomes harder and harder to reprogram your brain with new neuropathways to do things in a different way. You can absolutely do it. People learn new things all the time. But as adults, we know learning something, if you've done something a certain way, learning to do it a different way is hard. That's a hard thing to do. It's because your brain has developed these ingrained neuropathways that tell you to do it this way. So what happens is, let's say you promote somebody and, and they work on a manufacturing line. And you're like, oh, gosh, they've got great camaraderie, great people skills. We put them in the role and they never learn how to deliver feedback. And I pick on feedback because it's one of the skills that most people worry about the most and struggle with the most. They've never had to give well-structured feedback. They had great rapport with their colleagues before. And now they've got to give feedback to somebody who is chronically late and they don't know how to give effective feedback. And so it becomes kind of like word vomit when they try to give it. And now not only has that been not a great experience for the person giving it, and they've built a negative neural pathway, it was not a great experience for the person who is late and they're unlikely to change the behavior. And the likelihood that that situation is going to change is very low. In all likelihood, without training or intervention, that person's just going to continue to give that word vomit feedback forever. And giving feedback will become something that not only is ineffective for that person, possibly for their whole career, because if you don't train them and then they stay, then they'll have the whole career with you and they're giving poor feedback in your organization. But then it becomes something that is scary or hard for them because they they know it's not going well, but they don't know how to do it better because they don't have anybody teaching them how to do it. And now they're diverting what could be creative, productive energy into, oh God, I have to give feedback to so-and-so tomorrow and I hate giving feedback. And now we have 
kind of circling back to this thing that humans do is we we spiral inside of our heads and we divert energy to that ruminating on this conversation that I'm going to have to have that I don't know how to have and I'm I'm worried about it because I don't have the skill. Horses don't do that, right? They're present in the moment. They are able to stay present, but we don't have that luxury. We spiral. So then you end up with people who end up burnt out and exhausted because they're spending a whole lot of time trying to compensate for the fact that they don't have foundational skills. So the consequences for organizations, and there's so many studies out there, Gallup is kind of the leading researcher in this space, but so many studies about what happens when you have untrained managers who then aren't able to drive productivity. They aren't able to retain talent. They aren't able to reduce safety incidences. We see we see that a lot, especially in frontline environments. They aren't able to do all of the things that you want them to do because they have all this energy going into compensating for a lack of foundational skills. And I'm also curious to learn what do you, or what are the behaviors in particular, some more challenging behaviors that you notice in first-time frontline managers that are untrained, that don't get the support as you highlighted? Yeah. So we talked about feedback. Mm-hmm. That's the one that comes up the most often for people. The other one, and there's some really great insights that's coming out around this. Actually, Microsoft just published a great study on this around prioritization and delegation. The ability to, for any leader anywhere in an organization, for them to be able to look at here are the organizational priorities and how does that work down to my job or group level and how will then I articulate and prioritize for my team and help them understand how to prioritize work in the larger scope of things. That is a skill many people struggle with and they may be good at prioritizing for themselves individually, but being able to prioritize in a context of an organization is tricky and someone will do it. You just hope that they'll do it in a skillful way because eventually they have to. And so if you end up with middle or frontline leaders who don't know how to effectively prioritize, you can end up with a bit of a mess. And that's where you end up with a lot of big gaps in your work where you've got like work just kind of falling off into the organization. And you're like, why are they spending so much time doing these things that aren't aligned with a priority? Well, it's probably because they don't know how to prioritize. And then the, the sister to that is, is, of course, delegation. Can they then delegate work effectively in a way that engages people. And that that too is is a big skill that where else would you learn to delegate? That's not like a, a natural skill many people get the opportunity to learn. And so learning it in the workplace is really critical. Just uh, another point for the prioritization. Uh, it's also important that strategic priorities are being communicated very clearly. So it shows why it is so important to um, develop all levels of leaders and individual contributors who might want to become those leaders, right? Because there are so many steps that need to be thought through in order to make life not just easier for the people, but really help people be more productive and effectively support you in achieving the goals. And if they are not clear... What are we actually prioritizing? I think this is so important. And the the clarity of communication, absolutely critical. Also frequency of communication. Many times in organizations, a stumbling block I see is that the senior leadership thinks, well, we set it at the start of the year kickoff. Everyone knows the priorities. Yeah. You may you may well have said it, but the research now shows that especially with the with the increase in social media and the amount of time adults are spending on things like TikTok, which are short form media, 
most people, it used to be that most people needed to hear something seven times for it to solidify in their brain. The new research is saying it's about 11 times. So they need to hear it 11 times for it to solidify in their brain, which means if you set it in January and now you're halfway through or three quarters of the way through the year, they probably don't know it. You probably need to say it again and again and again. And that doesn't mean you need to ram it down people's throats, but finding ways to continue to have a solidified message is really critical. Amen. Didn't know about the updated research of 11 times every month. And then you are through the year (laughs) checking if you have achieved all your key priorities for the year. No, I'm joking. So I I think that brings in the need to become really creative about your communication. Yes. And the support you get also across the organization to communicate strategic priorities um, and engage people around it as well so that you hit the number 11 pretty swiftly in the year. It's true. And this also challenges us to be uh, honest with ourselves about how many priorities organizations have. If you have so many priorities that you listen to what we just said and you're thinking, if I have to say the priorities at every town hall every single month, let's say that's the format you have, we'll never talk about anything else. Then you may have too many priorities Mm -hmm. if it's going to take up too much time to tell people what they are. So that could be a really good gut check around, okay, we've got to be honest about what what actually is important. Isn't there a saying out there that says, if on your list there are more than two key priorities, then you have a to-do list. It's not a list of priorities. That's right. Yeah. And then you need to, then you need to prioritize your priorities and say, what are we actually going to do? Yeah. You also mentioned a point of delegation. Now, a delegation is one side of the story. I'm sharing responsibility with you. I'm asking you to support us in a task. Now, the key is to understand how much support and involvement might people need. And I know one of your key focus areas in your work is micromanagement. So where is the fine line between I am stepping in because I want to help you along the way and I become, by by all means, just a micromanager? So micromanagement is my favorite dirty word. And I talk about it a lot because it is so common and so pervasive in almost every culture. And I've had the opportunity to coach leaders on almost every continent except for Antarctica and seen that it is it is a common behavior in every culture. I've seen micromanagement be true in frontline organizations, in highly skilled, highly trained organizations. I've seen it all over the place. So it happens everywhere. And I said this earlier about people who are genuinely good people. Very few people are, are going around trying to be badly intended. Every micromanager I've ever worked with does not want to be a micromanager and does not intend to be a micromanager. In fact, most of the time, the micromanagers that I experience are that way due to an excess of good intention. They are trying to help or do the right thing so much that they are causing an impact that is disconnected from their intention. And so I think that that's really important when we talk about micromanagement. We're not talking about bad people. My favorite micromanager that I talk about a lot is Michael Scott. So if people have seen the um, American show, The Office, he's the main character, the the manager. He's a, he's a brilliant micromanager. He's a disaster area and he's so well-intended. He's like, his heart is so in it, but he just doesn't have the skill set to understand to your point, how do I adjust 
based on what the person on the other end of this conversation needs. So I tell the story. I mentioned that I'm from Colorado. I grew up skiing, actually. And when I was in my early 30s, I decided I was going to learn how to snowboard. My husband and all of our friends snowboarded, and it looks like so much fun. So I thought I would learn. And I'm of the belief I can learn anything, which is as I get older, learning proving to be not as true. And so I I went and I signed up for snowboarding lessons at the cutest little mountain here in Colorado. And I get to snowboarding lessons and there's this, this kid, He, I'm telling you he had to be 17 years old and he is my snowboard instructor. And I'm like, okay, here we go. This guy, the most beautiful demonstration of how to not micromanage I've ever seen in my life. And I'll tell you what happened. So I'm sitting in the snow and I'm like, I've never done this before in my life. And he says, okay, strap in and stand up. And I look at him like, what? And he instantly comes over and he says, here's what we need to do. The strap goes this way. You clip it down like this. You're going to do this. You're going to lean forward. Here's how you move your body. Here's how you stand up. So then I stand up and he's giving me these very step-by-step instructions. Great. He's giving me a little bit of encouragement. Then as the day goes on and I start to learn a little bit more, what he starts to do is step back that step-by-step instruction and start stepping up the encouragement because anybody who's ever learned a winter sport as an adult can tell you it doesn't feel great. It's really hard and it is indeed painful. And so as I'm falling, as I'm starting to get achy and sore, I need more encouragement. And he's starting to step back that, lean your body here, put the clip here because I don't need that anymore. And he's starting to step up the encouragement. And then as the day starts to come to a close and, you know, I'm going down a little bit, I can do it a little bit. He's starting to just let me have a little bit of that space because I can do it a little bit. And in these instances, you know, I fall down and he comes over. And instead of saying, oh, you fell there because you did X, Y, and Z, he would do things like, why do you think you fell? What might you do next time? And what he's beautifully demonstrating is the ability to adjust from What she needs now is super clear direction, step-by-step instruction, because she's never done this before, to what she needs now is a little bit of step-by-step instruction, but a lot of encouragement, to she still needs the encouragement, but now she has enough information to be able to answer her own questions and solve her own problems. Managers can do this same thing. It's very classic situational leadership type of behavior, but managers must be able to do similar to what we said before, which was notice what's going on make a decision about what's needed, sometimes involve that person in the decision and then choose to act in accordance with what's needed. And when managers forget to do those steps and just say, oh, I know the answer, or I'm going to tell you all the time because I know the answer or because I like to tell you and that's what I'm really good at or whatever reason they do it, that's when they become a micromanager and they start to disable their people and remove their people's ability to grow and become really great at what they do. 100% agree. And by the way, I love the example that you shared. And I hope you had some good cushions in your trousers uh, as well, because you fall often on you day one. You fall a lot. You fall the first few times you do it as an adult. I'm sure as a child too, but it's not as a big deal. Yeah, it's it's painful the first couple of times. Are you still a passionate snowboarder or have you become a passionate snowboarder? 
I am. I, I absolutely love it. I wouldn't say I'm I'm super good. Like I'm just, I'm never going to be Sean White. Like that's not my future. But I love it very much. And and I'm counting the days until we're back up uh, this winter. Very very excited about it. See, coming back again to Colorado. You've got it all. Lovely summers, outdoors, climbing, swimming, and so on. And then you go skiing and snowboarding, horse riding. I forgot about that, obviously. Yeah, yeah. Coming back to the micromanagement, uh, I think I would, again, add a perspective here as well. And that is the need to be aware of your nonverbal communication and in combination with verbal communication, i.e. tonality, for example. I think there's a huge difference between Someone in my team needs some more hand-holding at the moment. I might even have expressed it, right? Mm -hmm. You said make decisions together in some instances. And you define together what does more hand-holding mean? What's the kind of support? How long am I going to offer it? And so on and so forth. And that's fine, right? That's again what you said. I understand your needs. I'm listening to what you need. For me, it becomes also micromanagement if I then get involved all the time expressing distrust why did you do that what exactly did you do why didn't you call me it's very judgmental getting involved putting pressure on somebody i think it's it's vital to pay attention to the way we communicate in those moments it really is and that that question that you said right at the beginning why did you do that that can based on the way you've said it can be many different things you know tell me about why you did that that could be a very inviting question versus why did you do that? And this is where I encourage, and people sometimes find it to be silly until they really try it. I encourage that practice before you go in and have those conversations. So as I said, my dogs, very, very well-trained leadership development experts, because I practice on them all the time. Get it out of your mouth. Hear yourself the way it's coming out of your mouth. And then think, can I rephrase this a little bit? So even just a simple addition of a couple words from why did you do that to tell me about why you did that. Help me understand your thinking here. That can be such a more inviting way to do it. But sometimes if that's not part of your normal vocabulary, you've got to say it a couple of times. So if you have a partner or family members at home that are willing to let you practice on them, do it a lot. It's great. If you don't, do it in the mirror to your cat or to your dog or when you're walking down the street. It's fine if people think you're insane. It's completely yeah. fine. They will they will forget in moments, but just that practice of getting it out of your mouth so that you can have some self-reflection and be aware of how you're impacting others based on what you're hearing yourself say is really powerful. Smiling away here because I love the unconventional approach that's being suggested. Practice in any moment that you have available with whatever pet is available in that moment of time as well. I do wonder a little bit more about delegation combined with accountability, in particular in the hybrid space. Mm -hmm. All right. So, so things have shifted. Hybrid working, remote working, fantastic offers so many opportunities. Um, however, gives some nervousness to individuals, managers as well. One of the nervousness is I don't see my team all the time. I don't see their facial expressions, how they are coping, where they need support where you sometimes notice dynamics when you see each other, obviously, in an office space. And so, therefore, it's the one thing to say, I delegate. But the other thing is to say, how am I going to empower my team member to feel truly accountable if that's not their natural style? 
because there are team members who might be a little bit nervous about really having full responsibility for something, getting on with something themselves. Not everybody has this entrepreneurial spirit, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what can managers do in that relationship to, on the one hand, make their team members feel more trusted and quote unquote more comfortable? I'm very cautious of using that word here. And at the same time, making sure that this individual feels truly accountable as well. In this space, it comes down for me to two things. The first is, can you clearly articulate what good looks like? What is a good outcome? So that you as the leader can be really clear about what is expected in this task, what is the expected outcome, whatever the situation might be, but being very, very clear about what's expected. And again, coming back to some Gallup data, a lot of people report they don't know what's expected of them in their role or on a task. And so while we might have clarity in our own minds as leaders, being able to articulate that really clearly so that the individual can understand, okay, this is what good looks like. This is what the outcome that is required is. That is the first step to being able to delegate effectively, whether you're in a hybrid setting or not, being really clear about what good looks like and what the expectations are. The second is what we've already talked about. It's deciding together. It's being able to have that conversation with somebody to say, what would good support look like to you? How can I be helpful to you in this situation? Is this a task or or piece of work where you need me to be more involved step-by-step? Is this a task where you need me just checking in periodically to see how you're going? Is this something that you've done this a million times? You're amazing. And what you need for me is to get the heck out of the way. And then I'm going to do that. Right. But it's deciding together to be able to say, how can I be supportive to you on this task? And maybe that's going to look different from how I'm going to support you on a different task because that's a different deal. But let's decide together. And then let's also put in some guardrails so that I'm checking back to make sure that the decision we make today is still working for you a week from now or a month from now or whatever the right timeline is. And then we can decide again together, how will we continue to go forward? And for leaders, this sometimes takes a bit of an ego check to say, I know what would work for me, but that's not what it's about. It's about what's going to work for this person to allow them to get what they need and to be able to do the work. And then you know, the last thing I said, it was two, but it's really, it's really three. It's that trust. You've got to trust that what you've agreed to, you're going to stick to, and you're going to continue to allow that person to tell you, this is what I need and, and help deliver that to them. Ah, fully agree. And I think in order to enhance that trust, again, we come back to the regular communication, the frequency of communication as well. Even if it's this five minute check-in, Hey, how are you doing? you know, anything you need from me and, and yeah, keep building it really. Yeah. And it's, it's about knowing that trust is, is a, is an ever flowing relationship. And there will be times where you've got to, you've got to gut check a little bit as an e- as a leader and say, is my ego getting ahead of my ability to build this trust with that person? Because I think I know better, or I think I've got a great solution. This one comes up a lot when you're defining what good looks like. You may know what the outcome is, you might have somebody on your team who has a way to get there that is entirely different than what you might do. It might be better than your ideas. That's possible. And being open to that and allowing that to be true. And then also being open to sometimes people are going to make a mistake and things are going to fail. Sometimes you can't allow that to be the destroyer of the trust in your relationships. 
And how incredible is it that other people might have even better ideas and suggestions than you have, and you can actually learn a little bit more as well. And it's so cool when you build a team that blows your mind on a regular basis and comes to you with ideas you would never have come up with. And now, instead of being just limited to the potential that you could have as an individual, the collective team is able to do something so much more powerful than what you could have done on your own. That's cool. When that happens, that's when the cool stuff really starts coming out as a leader. That is cool indeed. Um, Look, before I let you go, I have a couple more questions for you. One is, what are the trends currently in the leadership space? What can we pay and should we pay attention to? Oh, so there was a trend going on, I think, at the start of 2023 around this quiet quitting, which is my Mm -hmm. least favorite word in, in the history of time. Because I think most people don't, I don't think people understand what it means. I think some people thought it was like people are being lazy and some people were like, I'm just going to set boundaries. And then there's a negative connotation to that. So I'm, I'm really, I'm glad that that is starting to dissipate a little bit and we're not using that term quite so much. I think we are still in a trend of trying to figure out what return to work looks like. Mm -hmm. We still have organizations that are trying to figure out how will our working environment look going forward? Do we force everyone back into the office? Do we let them continue to be hybrid, fully remote? What does that look like? And I think that this will be a conversation we'll continue to have for the next couple of years around how can we allow, and my personal opinion is it should be about how do we allow the work to make the decision about what the appropriate working environment is. So if it's a project that absolutely requires people to physically be in, if you're a neurosurgeon, you probably need to come in the office, right? Like you can't do that from your kitchen. Hopefully not. not. Um, But, you know, let's let the work make those decisions and allow that to drive what work looks like in the future. I think that'd be super cool. My other worry is there was a huge bit of momentum around diversity, equity, inclusion in the last couple of years. And I feel that that is is quieting out a little bit. Mm -hmm. And I hope that the evolution of that becomes how do we continue having a conversation about diversity of thought so that we're really trying to open up space to bring in new ways of thinking, new perspectives, maybe better ideas than we could come up with on our own and creating environments where diversity of thought is king. So for me, I'm I'm hopeful and I'm starting to see some glimmers of that coming through and I'm really looking forward to where that goes. Me too. And I actually see a benefit of it not being the big topic anymore because while it was, in particular here across Europe, everywhere on LinkedIn and so on, it was fully present, right? Let's talk about diversity, equity and inclusion. People I worked with were either annoyed because it became a little bit too much yeah. or overwhelmed. What does it really mean? And had a lot of question marks in terms of and and what does it mean for me what can I do right what is the wrong thing to do I I feel really insecure right because it feels so complex what I'm noticing is we are stepping now into a space where we have what you just said exactly those meaningful conversations about what's the diversity of thought here how can we invite other people to not only speak up but to feel really listened to what did we take away from this perspective yeah. And so on and so forth. And to build it into our day to day and to become more aware of the diversity we have indeed around us and how we are interacting with that diversity. And that's beautiful to see. It really is. And Brene Brown has been saying this for a long time, but I think it's really poignant here in this diversity of thought conversation. She says, 
the opposite of belonging is fitting in. And for a long time, we've driven fitting in in organizational culture. And some of the in the office uh, environments drive fitting in versus belonging and truly being able to be yourself and bring your own diversity of thought to the workplace. So I'm excited to see how more of that starts to bubble up and become part of part of the cultures in some of the workplaces out there. Yeah, and I am excited to see what's coming from you, you know, what the future brings. So let people know where can they find you and all your wonderful resources. So two places. Um, I have my website, which we'll link below. That's a great place to to have a look at what offers I have. I do offer a program. It's a 90-day program for leaders who want to build those foundational skills and do it in an intentional way, supported by coaching. It's so much fun. Um, I only open up five spots a month. So uh, sometimes there's a bit of a waiting list, but it's available there and, and how to how to learn more about is on my website. And then I spend a bit of time on LinkedIn. So I do some thought sharing and, and insights on LinkedIn. So you can find me there as well. Amazing. I can highly encourage you all to have a look at the website, connect on LinkedIn and get in touch with Sarah really and learn with and from her. It's been a huge pleasure to talk to you here today and to learn from you. So thank you for your generosity in thought and in insight and in and, and thank you for making me laugh as well. Love a bit of humor. So I really appreciate that. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me as a guest. And to all of you out there, I am so curious to hear from you and to hear what was one of your key insights from this conversation. What is perhaps one key step that you said, oh, I need to practice that. I need to put that into action. Haven't even thought about it. Let me let us know. And I'm looking forward to it. Until then, take good care. Be the best leaders you can be for yourself and for others. And speak to you again very, very soon. Bye-bye, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to the Legendary Leaders Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, then remember to subscribe to the show either on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or my website, www.kathleenmerkel.com. I would also love to hear from you to discover what topics you'd like to hear more about, what topics really resonated with you, and how you're enjoying the show in general. Perhaps you have some ideas for additional topics, something that you're truly curious about. Please do leave your review on Apple Podcasts as well. It would mean the world to us. Thank you so much and speak to you again next time. Take good care. Bye.